From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, episode 24, Sick Transit Gloria. I didn't even know she was sick. So hi there, and welcome to The Spiel. My name is Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. And here we are in episode 24. We've got uh, an all-Roman uh, lineup here yeah. from the list stretching to the back shelf spotlight. And uh, it should be pretty interesting. Ancient, but but fun. Dust there's off a, some old ones. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some really neat games. I think we got a few surprise, little surprise in the goober section. Should be fun. Yep, yep. So we're we're gonna tackle uh, Gloria Mundi, James Ernest's uh, first uh, outing with Rio Grande game games in the list, and then uh, got Caesar and Cleopatra in the back shelf spotlight. So so get a little bit of ancient history, dust off your old Latin phrase book, and uh, <laughs> and jump in and see where we go. Cool. Game news and notes. So I'm surfing the internet the other day, and surprisingly, I actually find a Rio Grande game that I did not know was out. How did that happen? <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> so it looks really cool, so that's my little bit of news today, is a game called um, Taluva, or Taluva, however the heck you pronounce it. Um, it's co-published by Rio Grande and Hanzoom Gluck. It came out, I think, just within the last couple months. It had to have been, because yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, it was designed by uh, Marcel Andre Casasola Merkel. Two to four players, ages 10 and up. List for 30 bucks. You can find it online for 20 to 25. Uh, the setting of the game is a mysterious island in the middle of an ocean. <laughs> an island has all these volcanoes that are erupting and con constantly causing the island to have this ever-changing kind of geographical thing working for it. So it looks really cool, the components are ultra neat all the little painted wooden pieces for i think there's like temples and towers and huts and the shapes of these are really cool i don't i don't know if i've seen these particular shapes used before yeah that's i saw the pictures but it, it looks really look neat really the, interesting the little land tiles are kind of almost like three hexes fused together so each one is that kind of like triangle or l shape or mm -hmm. something like that so what's that other game is it Java? Java. That they, has they, kind of They do like look that? very similar to Java. Hmm. Um, I don't know how the game plays out, um, but I know that on your turn you get to lay a tile. You can either lay it on the flat on the table or you can actually start building vertically. Oh, that's cool. A couple rules are that the volcanoes have to go on top of volcanoes, <laughs> which is pretty cool. And you can actually destroy people's little huts and stuff by building sections of the island on top of it. Mm -hmm. So it looks really cool. And, you know, for online, for a price of $20, the bits look, yeah, the, look really cool. That's kind of a mythological aspect to it, doesn't it? To some of, like, like battling titans yeah, and gods or something Yeah, there's something about titans like... and gods that live on the island, and you're attempting to settle your people here, you know, and it's this force between them, you know, and the volcanoes erupting, you trying to settle. <laughs> it looks looks really cool. I'm not 
haven't read a whole lot about it, but you know, I'm a sucker for bits. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't believe I missed this one. Usually, yeah, that's I know shocking. everything that's coming out. Dave's game radar is usually pretty <laughs> darn uh, accurate, and this time it somehow it escaped him. <laughs> but but look for this one. It it looks really interesting. Yeah, I I would definitely look for that one too. Um, my news and notes this time is kind of a really interesting uh, bit of information that I ran across. Um, there's a student um, in Scotland at university who's finishing up his thesis, um, and his name is Phil Rogers, and he's actually, his thesis is um, dealing with board games. That's awesome. And so he sent out um, an inquiry to people on BoardGameGeek.com and some other places asking for people to take this online survey related to his thesis. Um, so I'm going to read this. He gave him kind of the letter of introduction of what he's doing and what this is all about. So I thought I'd just read a little bit of this so you, you could see what it was and to hopefully encourage anybody out there who's listening to help uh, good old Phil out here and, and maybe fill out his surveys and see um, if we can help him get his degree and, <laughs> and get out there and, and start helping the, helping the world with uh, learning about games. So here's his letter. So he says, Hi, I'm Phil Rogers. I'm currently in my fourth and final year at Abertay University in Dundee, Scotland, studying for a Bachelor's of Science with honors in web design and development. For my fourth year honors thesis, I am currently gathering research for my honors thesis, posing the question, uh, is it possible to create a set of design heuristics that facilitate the easy transition of a traditional analog table-based board game into a digital computer version? I'm looking at the pro at the processes and considerations of computer game designers that they have to look at when they decide to convert an existing board game into a computer or console-based version. Some of the questions to possibly consider during his research are, can a set of design rules be created that take into bro a broad range of factors when converting a board game into a computer game? Do they take into consideration the existing fan base of a board game? Do they consider the existing board game's designers' feelings and efforts that they took into account when designing the next computer version? Uh, why, do compu or why do universities not have more courses regarding the design of board games? And don't they know that designers of today's high-end computer games still need top knowledge about mechanics and gameplay when it comes to board games themselves? Consider the comparisons that could be drawn between games like squad leader the board game compared to company of heroes which is a computer game and the, the kind of differences in terms of mechanics right. and things like that so he goes on to say even though i've been studying web design for the past four years my heart has always been playing games especially board games i hope with my skills and knowledge from the thesis i am able to create employment for myself and help promote understanding of traditional analog board game design mechanics in this new world of digital technology the new generation of computer electronic-based game designers need to understand where their, where their art evolved from. And if I can do that and be gainfully employed doing something I'm passionate about, then so much the better. <laughs> if, hey, if we can help yeah. Phil do that, that would be great. We certainly are, are you know, cut out of the same cloth here at the, the right. Spiel. Uh, we definitely uh, are looking to try to widen people's understandings of uh, of board games and how much they kind of have influenced the way other games are going in the the world today too. So we're going to include links to. He's got two surveys up that um, hopefully you'll take part in because it'll be helping him out and and widening other people's knowledge about board games. So 
please check those out. Um, I think it would be a, a good cause and a, a very helpful I would love to see a lot more um, computer versions of board games designed from the standpoint of the people designing them fully understood the board game versions and how mechanically they work and all that and have maybe some of the emphasis be to keep it, you know, I mean, obviously you want to add in all the new high-tech cool looks to it, but you don't want to lose what made it popular as a board game. And if you come to it from the angle of being a board game designer or aficionado, that would be great. Well, I think there's a, there's certainly a trend. Xbox 360 on their um, arcade, their live version where you can play with other people right. through their Xbox um, Live thing. Um, they've got, I think it's Carcassonne and Settlers and, and several other Euro games that are starting to come out. And to me, I hope that the interactiveness of right. being able to, to play those games with anyone without them you know, being... Changing the game in some exactly. you know, fundamental way would just be how cool. There are plenty yeah, of people out there. I mean, that we could play with people listening to the show right now in, in that environment oh, as well right. as you know online through a computer. I don't see that as as cheating. It just expands your the group of people you can play with and how right, cool exactly. how cool would that be? So very very cool. So check that out. Lastly, before we leave news and notes today, we've got a little shameless plug of our <laughs> own here. Um, we've got, um, we're, we're hoping to make this kind of a recurring theme here on a local basis and maybe even expand out from there, but we're actually going to be teaching some classes on games at a local library here. So if anybody's a local, local to the Indianapolis or Midwest area who might be interested, we're going to be teaching a class on March 12th and April 12th at the Zionsville uh, Public Library which is a northern suburb here of Indianapolis, just just north of the city here. Um, We're going to be doing one called Beyond Park Place, which is sort of an introduction to Euro games. Exactly. Um, On March 12th at 7 p.m. It's going to be 7 to 8.30, I think. And then The Big Deal, which is going to be more of a rules-intensive look at three classic card games. Um, And that one's going to be on April 12th at 3.30 to 5 um, in the afternoon, um, both at the Zionsville Library. We'll put up links to the Zionsville Library site, and you can read a little bit more about cool. that. But um, you might clue them in on you know what we hope to accomplish. It should be fun. This. I'm looking uh, only a couple weeks here away from the first one, uh, Beyond Park Plays, just kind of an intro into what um, Stephen and I consider gateway games, some of the best ones being Carcassonne and Settlers and stuff like that, and, and also maybe um, be able to expose these people to what we're calling the family tree of games. If you're comfortable with something like Carcassonne, where do you go from there to move on to you know a broader variety of games or maybe just slightly more strategic games and stuff like that. So we're going to bring truckloads of games from our collections to show everybody. I, we assume that most people attending will be, um, they won't really have... <laughs> the uninitiated. Yeah, exactly. So it should be rather shocking. Yeah. We're, we're, I know we're probably preaching to the choir here with the listeners on the spiel. You know, most of you people are already into these kinds of games. But on the off chance that there are some newcomers out there who are interested in this wider world of games and don't have a lot of experience, or if you just want to come and heckle us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Heckling is good. Um, we'll put up all the information there on, on the website, and you can, you can check that out. I think our main purpose is to convert. Yes. <laughs> We're on our, our, I guess you can't call them soapboxes. I guess we have to call them game boxes. There you go. Exactly. We'll be up there proselytizing, so you, you can come and preach to the, <laughs> preach to the converted with us. <laughs> the List. Over a decade ago, 
we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100, and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. So just uh, one game on the list this week. Uh, we're going to go kind of a little more in-depth because this game deserved a little more in-depth treatment and is a little, was a little bit longer and involved than some of the games we've done in the past few few episodes. Right. So um, this week's game is Gloria Mundi. Um, it was published just this last year, 2006. Uh, the designer is James Ernest, who you might know from his various cheap-ass game offerings, and Mike Selinker. Um, the publishers, Rio Grande Games. It plays from two to six players, and the box says about an hour. I would say it's probably hour to two hours, yeah. depending upon the number of people Definitely. that you're playing with. I know you said with two, you played a two-player game. We did it with game. two, and it was around an hour, but ours was much ours closer was, to two. Yeah, ours was way closer to two. So um, here's a little background and a little flavor about about how the you know the the, the theme of the cool. game. So Gloria Mundi is a, a a board game that's set during the fall of Rome. You're a Roman statesman struggling to survive in this era of cultural decline and political chaos. While foreign invaders and domestic incompetence devour the last resources of the empire, you'll try to build your career out of the rubble. You start in Rome, and the Visigoth starts on the outskirts of a spiral uh, tracked board. Each turn you play, and each turn, you play and purchase cards that produce resources and give you special effects, as well as allowing you to move further out of the doomed Eternal City. Then the Visigoth moves towards Rome, destroying all of your hard-fought and, and built cards. Unless you spend your precious resources to, to bribe the Visigoth to hold him off for another turn. When the Visigoth reaches Rome, a player who reaches the outskirts of the Empire, the first player to reach uh, Carthage, or the farthest away is going to be the winner of the game. So you can see it's sort of you're set right as the bar this game is set kind of right as the barbarian hordes are are sweeping down exactly. from from the north and into Rome, and you're trying to flee into southern Italy and hopefully across the Mediterranean Ocean to uh, Carthage to safety. So a little bit about the components because the components are really pretty interesting in this cool. game. Um, you get six Roman senators, which are these sort of plastic, clear plastic um, guys that yeah, they're kind of they, they they have little heads on them and, and little sort of not laurel wreaths, but they look sort yeah. of Romanesque yeah, a they, little bit. They have that little <laughs> um, the little spiky yeah. thing coming out of their helmet. That's the technical term for yeah. it. <laughs> Um, so you have six of those. Each player is going to pick one, and that's going to be your guy, your senator, basically, that you're trying to flee from Rome. Um, and then there's the Goth, who's this giant sort of reddish-orange, uh, you know, badass-looking uh, figure that's going to move from the top of the board, and, and that's going to be one of the key mechanics that we'll get to in a minute. Um, there's 60 wooden resource counters and 40 wooden glory counters. Um, the resource counters, you've got white rectangles, which represent the peace counters, um, and those are generated by the legions, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, the gold discs are the coins, which are generated by the cities. The green food, the green cubes are the food, which are generated by the farms. Duh. <laughs> and then, like I said, the glory counters are little purple cylinders, and those are wilds, which could be, represent any of the different kind of resources. 
You also get 70 production cards, and these are split into uh, 30 farms, 20 cities, and 20 legions. And those are going to be how uh, the different areas in which you can develop your, your buildings. Um, so then you also have 57 building cards that are going to be keyed up to these different kinds of land areas or legions or farms. Um, that's where you're going to play those. Um, there are six screens that you hide your resources um, behind that are colored coded uh, to match your little Roman dude. Right. Um, and then finally, you've got a board that depicts a map of Italy and the Mediterranean part of the Mediterranean. It kind of has a winding track. It's, it's really basically a race game. Yeah, absolutely. At its, at its heart, there's a winding track that goes from the north part of Italy and just kind of snakes down to Rome, and then goes from Rome all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to uh, Carthage. Your dudes are going to start in Rome. The Goth is going to start up in the northern part of of Italy and come trundling down <laughs> into Rome. Hopefully not before you get out. <laughs> um, so the object of the game, just to, to reiterate it, is you're trying to move your senator as far away from Rome as possible before the goth sacks the city. Um, so here's the, the basic setup for the game. You're going to start, like I said, with your senators in Rome. The goth's going to begin at the northern, northernmost point of the board. Each player's going to take a screen and your production cards. The number of these cards is going to depend upon the number of players that are playing. However, regardless of the number of players that are playing, you're going to always have equal numbers of city and legion cards. And regardless of the number of players playing, you're always going to have a few more farms right. than you have legion or city cards. And you're going to keep those secret behind your little screen um, so that people have to kind of pay attention to what you've played or what might have been destroyed during the course of the game. Uh, finally, the last part of the setup is you get to pick one of your production cards, either the farm, the city, or the legion, and play it out in front of you. I think you put one of each out. Oh, do you? Yeah, you oh, start okay. the game with one of each. All right. Um, and then you pick a starting player by whatever method that you want. Crazy, you random. <laughs> Whoever can say the first phrase in Latin. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> whatever method you want to pick, you can, you can decide. You start the game. So what happens on a turn? There's basically five phases to each turn. And they're pretty pretty darn simple once you get the flow of, of the game. Right. The last part, I think, is the most complicated, the move, moving the goth and paying the tribute. The first ones are, are a little more standard. So to overview, the five phases are you're going to add a building to the forum, you're going to play a production card, you're going to activate cards, then you're going to build build, uh, build buildings if you can afford to, and then finally you're either going to move the goth or you're going to pay him tribute to keep him from moving. And though all five of those things are going to happen or not happen based on uh, whether you can afford them or right. some of them are definitely going to happen. So let's just get right into the, <laughs> the meat of it here. So adding a building to the forum. So the buildings are keyed to each of the three areas of production, farms, cities, and legions. They're color-coded, so it's easy to tell which buildings can be built where. There are a few red building cards, and these can be built in any area. Before you can build, though, you have to put them up for sale in the forum. There are six spaces in the forum numbered 0 through plus 5. The newest building is always placed in the, on the label that's plus 5. Other buildings not purchased on previous rounds are going to be shifted down one space on the track until this track is filled up. When the track is full and a new card is added to the forum, then the building in the space labeled zero is going to be discarded so it's no longer available for sale. Each building has a cost in resource tokens printed along the right-hand margin of the card. 
The cost may be a mix of one, two, or three of the resources. So those piece counters, the coins, or the food cubes, the farm things that the farms right. produce. Um, those are that's how you're going to buy these cards. But there's a catch: the space on the forum that the building occupies also adds an additional cost to the card. So if a building is on that plus, plus five, five space, you have to pay not only the cost listed on the card, but you have to pay five, five. extra things. The, the catch is that those five can be anything. So that there's no re- special requirement. If you can fulfill the cost of the card and then you have five of whatever else, then you could, on the buying phase, then you could buy that card. So the forum kind of sets the market Exactly. Uh, for that particular turn, but it's going to change. You can see because they're always going to be shifting down. So something might be really expensive at first, but you can say, "Well, hopefully, I can wait long enough that someone else won't buy it before I can afford it." So that's phase one. You're going to draw a card. You're going to put it down and shift things if you need to. Pretty darn easy. Phase two, you're going to play a production card. So these are the cards: your farms, your legions, and your, your cities, cities that are behind your little screen here. You're going to pick a production card from your stock and play it in front of your screen. So it's now in play. Um, remember, you have a limited supply, though, of each type. So once you've played all of one type, you're never going to be able to play another one of that type for the whole game. So you kind of have to keep that in mind in, in strategy terms. Um, in order to buy a building card from the forum, you have to have an unoccupied production card of that type in play. So the strategy here is to know which production card to play and when so you can afford the buildings you want and have a place to put it when you want to buy exactly. it. Exactly. So there's there's kind of the <laughs> one of the heart of the strategy of the game is is looking at the board, seeing what's available and what's up for sale and what you want to put out there to try to to put into your little mini empire right. if you want to call it something like that. So that's phase 2. Phase 3, you're going to activate cards. So the type of production card you play in phase 2 determines which cards are active for all players. So unlike the other phases where it's just you doing stuff, in phase three, everybody Everybody. is going to kind of participate. If you play a farm, then all farms are active. If you play a city, then all cities are active, and so on with the legions as well. If the production card doesn't have a building on it, then it simply produces the resource that's keyed to that type of of production card. So if it's a farm turn, then the farms are going to produce food, the cities are going to produce gold, the legions are going to produce peace. But it's only that type. So whatever you play on on phase two is going to determine what's going to be produced. If a production card has a building, though, then you have a choice to make for each of the places that has a building. You can either do what the building's special ability is, or you can just let it produce as it would would normally produce its one gold. And you get to make that decision for each one of the buildings that you might have. And not only do you get to decide that, but everybody else who has buildings gets to decide that too. So there's the real rub in the strategy is you want to really pay attention to where people's strengths and weaknesses are. Because if they have a truckload of farms out there with special abilities you might think twice about playing a farm card out because you know you're essentially helping them by allowing them to use all those special abilities. Of course, like any good uh, game of this style, you're put in that bind on every turn where you almost always have to help somebody a little in order to help yourself a lot. 
or even just a little yourself. Exactly. You're, you're almost never going to get off scot-free without helping somebody else and helping yourself at the same time. So that's that's really, I think, a fun aspect of, of the game. And when you get to Phase 3, everybody's going to kind of participate in that phase, and it's a way to reload right. um, you know, and build up the resources so that when you get to Phase 4, which is the next phase... You can you actually can, afford to build stuff. <laughs> hopefully you've, got, and you've planned right. When you get to Phase 4... If you have the resources that you need behind your little screen now to buy one of those buildings from the forum, then you just pay the appropriate price and you uh, pull it over and put it on one of your production cards that's that's empty. Um, the other advantage, and here's really the name of the game, is that each card has listed on it in their little laurel wreaths icons on the side has a number of spaces that you're going to get to move your senator forward on the track. So after all... You may have forgotten already, but the name of the game is to get your senator out of Rome. So by buying these buildings, not only are you going to get to do the special abilities on later turns, but the minute that you buy it, you're going to get to move your senator a certain number of spaces out of Rome. The cards are really nicely balanced in terms of some of them will let you move four, other ones will move one, and the special abilities are kind of balanced right. on the opposite side. So the ones that you might move really far may not have as cool a, an effects, or they may be more expensive. So there's there's a nice, I think, card balance in there. Remember that you're not going to get to use the special abilities of your buildings until, until the following, the following because the that comes in the activate card phase, which is phase three. So... Don't you can't go? Oh, I really need to use that to buy something else because you're not going to be able to do that till your following turn or the follow not your following turn, Anybody but the else, following right. activate card phase. So if the very next player takes a turn where you bought a building that has a special ability that that's active, you could use it then. It doesn't have to wait till it comes all the way back around to you. Whew, you with me so far here? <laughs> <laughs> so lastly. Phase five is the move move the goth or pay tribute. And this is, I think, the most unique aspect of the game. Very cool. I, I think you'd probably agree. Yes. <laughs> um, the, the goth is going to move forward one space on the track unless you pay him tribute. Each space in front of the goth is marked with a different resource type. Some spaces even have two different resource types. To keep the goth from moving forward, you can pay tribute to him and place matching resource tokens onto the space in front of the goth. If there are two resources listed, then you've got to pay both of them. So the Goth may not move for several turns while people play tribute, pay tribute to him. In this case, the tribute cost is the next empty space on the track. So that's how you pay him tribute. That's, that's kind of the, you know the game's going to end if he gets to Rome. So you can forestall him, him off, getting right? there by, by paying some of your hard-earned resources out onto the board. Now, of course, you may get to the point where you can't or you don't wish to pay the tribute. So if that happens, then the goth is going to move to either an empty space on the board in front of him or to the last space on the track where there's tribute. Now this is where it gets ugly and painful. <laughs> the goth is going to destroy production cards, starting with the player who didn't pay the tribute. This player looks over all the resource tokens that have been taken as tribute. The player must discard a production card played in front of him that matches one of those tribute tokens. If there's still tribute tokens remaining, then the player to the left is forced to discard a production card, and so on, until one production card has been discarded for every tribute token that has been played to the board. If a production card that you've played and have to discard has a building, guess what? It is gone, gone. too. <laughs> so 
that's really, really painful. Once this process is over, then the tribute tokens, this is kind of the, the, the double-edged sword. You do lose something, but you're going to get something back. All those tribute tokens that are on the board are going to get redistributed to all the players, starting with the player who didn't pay the tribute. He's going to look over those, select one, put it behind his screen, so on and so forth. The next player is going to pick one until all the tribute tokens have been taken. Once they've been taken and the goth moves into his new spot on the board, you've basically finished your turn and the next turn is going to begin following the same pattern of placing you're going to place a building onto the forum uh you're then going add one to add card. one production card uh then you're going to activate the cards um and either get resources or do the special abilities you're going to buy buildings if you can and then the goth's going to move or you're going to pay him tribute so that he can't move so a little bit long-winded there, but it's really, I think it's an interesting uh, game for being essentially a race game. Right, I love He's the found a of totally, totally interesting <laughs> way to, to tweak these mechanics and really, I think, preserve the, the theme uh, very well into, into a, exactly. a more abstract kind of mechanic. So I'll stop. I'll catch my breath <laughs> <laughs> and let you uh, let, let us know what you think. I, I love this game. I was I was totally surprised. It was you have to call it a resource management game, but at its heart, you're right. It's it's absolutely a race game. So I love the mix of resource management management to determine the, the race, race. Yeah, you know, which is really <laughs> cool. Which I can't think nothing's coming to mind of a game that I've played that has that certain kind of element. You yeah, know, where you're you know managing resources for the race. The other thing is is it has um, just a hint of um, Puerto Rico. Yes. You know, I mean, every time when you activate a production card in your turn, everybody else also gets to do that. It's like taking a roll. Mm -hmm. You know, Puerto Rico, everybody else is going to get to do something. So it's it's got a whole bunch of little things, and he melds them together really well. Well, and the, the card combinations, too. With, right, exactly. Uh, that has a little bit of overlap with something like Puerto Rico, where right. all these different buildings have special abilities, which will do things like... Um, they may allow you to produce double the amount, like your farms now produce two when it's a farm turn. Or they could allow you to move further on the track, like whenever right. there's a farm turn, you just get to move one forward. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting, without boring you and going through every right. single yeah. building's ability. I, mean, I think there's 57 buildings, and I would say not every single one has a different one, but the majority of them have a, a slightly it, right. different uh, special ability. And there's really interesting interactions there's between combinations, the combinations right. that you can get, which I think just lends to replayability. Oh, big time. And a the, ton. The, the golf moving on his little track is genius. Because the strategy that you can use there to look ahead and see, okay, if he if he does move, he's going to eat these types of production cards in this particular turn order, and to try to time when mm -hmm. you can finally just say, okay, we can't pay tribute anymore. It's in my best interest to let him eat this stuff now versus you know last turn. <laughs> yes. You know, is is just a great little mechanic. I think to me that the interesting thing is normally when you have those kind of you pay resources to build stuff up, um, you're building up and it's like not untouchable, but you have your own little empire and it's just going to kind of get bigger and right. bigger. And this one, you're just sort of trying to stem the tide. Exactly. You're building up stuff knowing that stuff's going to go away <laughs> before the end of the game. And it's is it going to be a time of your choosing? 
that something goes away or is it going to be like the worst possible moment where you just spent all this money to buy these buildings and then it didn't even get around to you so you got to use the special ability before poof you had to get rid of that particular kind of card so. exactly i love that you can like if i were to have amassed like several city production cards with really cool buildings on them obviously my opponents are going to not want to play city cards <laughs> but but they're going to have to Yes. You know, I mean, because that's just the way the balance of the game is, and you can catch them finally going, okay, I'm going <laughs> to play this city card, so they play out, now they have one city card, and then all of a sudden you notice that the track is lining up, that there's going to be a city card that's going to be needed to throw, get thrown away when the goth eats it. You can do the timing right to where you can actually force them <laughs> to have to throw away the one that they just played to give you all the good stuff from your huge collection of city cards. <laughs> so it's... It's kind of insane, but it's really cool. Yeah. I think I stopped short of, of saying the three way, four ways that the game can end, too. Um, so the game can end like we I think we covered. The right. If the goth reaches Rome, the game ends immediately, and the player who's farthest down the track and closest to Carthage is going to win. That's true for most of these things. That whoever's the closest farthest, to, right. to Carthage is going to win. So it can end that way. It can end if someone actually reaches Carthage. Obviously, they're going to be the winner. Um, if a particular player has no production cards, left, meaning they've played all their cities, all their legions, and all of their farms, then the game ends and you look to see who's the farthest down the track. And lastly, if the building deck is exhausted, then the game ends. Right. But that doesn't seem... <laughs> 57 buildings being built, yeah. that seems like it would be a crazy game. Right, or if that actually cycled through the forum, right. Mm -hmm. but In the case of ties, the player with the most resources exactly. is going to win if you happen to be on, on the same space and you're furthest towards Carthage, but... Um, I guess the only uh, one thing that I've seen some people knock this game because of um, they think that the game is too heavily weighted towards the farms. The farms. Which what what do you think about that? Um, well, te technically, yes, there are there's more farms than there are, are cities or the legion cards. Um, I I can see the point that everybody is talking about when they say it's heavily weighted because a lot of the buildings that are built on the farms, obviously there's more of those. Since there's more farms, it makes sense. Um, but everybody's given a like number of farms and cities and legions at the beginning. And I, I'm just not sure if it holds completely holds weight that it's unbalanced. But we've only played it with two players and with three players. Right. And I think everybody's... Um, discussion is that as you get more players is when it really starts, the imbalance starts to appear. So I haven't experienced that with a lower number. And if it does happen with a larger amount, then we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, the, uh, the one that I thought caught my eye was that Bruno Faiduti, famous ah. European game designer, uh, he said that he thought that when it when you scale it up to four, five, or six players, that it starts the math at least lends credence to the uh -huh. idea that it is a little bit unbalanced. Um, so I'm just going to quote from his little review here because I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, is that he see he says with more more than three people, there seems to be a great advantage, especially with many players and relying on farms rather than cities or legions. And he says simple math confirms that if you just look at the ratios, with two or three players, it's 1.33 times as many farms as legions. With four players, it's 1.4. Five, it's 1.5. And with six, it's 1.66. So you can see that ratio does go Jump up. up right. he, he said having played 
with more than four or five or six players that he proposes this little house rule that he thinks actually fixes the issue and makes it a little more balanced. And that just simply is with five players, you start with one less farm than what the rules say. With six, he gets a little wacky and says... Um, you only have four farms, three cities, and three legions, and then the other cards that you would normally deal out, you mix up and you deal at random. Not, uh, which I don't know. I, I tend to agree with you. You were saying earlier when we were talking right. about this that I like the idea that we all know that th- at least in that respect, there's it's right. a perfect information kind of game. You Ex- know exactly how many of what types of of legions, farms, and cities everyone right. has. Because to me, if the argument is that everything's weighted in the ways of farms, then you shuffle up a few cards at random and guarantee that one or two people are going to get those extra farms. I don't see how that fixes... Yeah, that was... But I... I do like if you just remove an extra farm. Yeah. You know? But by the same token, you know, I think James intended for the farms to be more important, or he wouldn't have included more farms and yeah. more farm buildings. Yeah, yeah. So I think if you go into the game knowing that this, your strategy is going to have to rely, you, you can't win the game without some concentration on forests, but with the right combination of other stuff mixed with it, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see you know, yeah. a huge problem with that. I could, I could see someone, if you came in thinking that... You didn't necessarily All have to created, invest on right. farms, but that's really a first-time playthrough exactly. issue and not really an issue with the game right. per se. You just, if you're teaching someone for the first time, you say, "Now you're gonna, you're gonna definitely need to have some farms." You, you know, there's other cool stuff that you do, and it's not that you couldn't win by doing legions or cities because I was really heavy on the cities, and I was only, I think, Francie ended up winning, but it was actually right. very, very close. Um, the two-player game that I played, um, I won and. The person, my opponent, actually was very heavy in farms, and I was very light in farms, and I still managed to win. But that was again a two-player game where you know the problem may not exist. Right, so. right. I would very much if if you like uh, uh, ancient Roman themed games, especially because to, to me, I think that's one of the things that it does. The mechanics serve the theme very well in this game, and I I always tend to give high marks for right. for games that are able to marry those two things well, together, where you've got a good concept and then the actual the feel of the game with you're having to constantly what keep him at bay, <laughs> and but then you know you're you're, yeah. you're going to have to pay the piper at some point, and it's just when do you, you want to dictate when that happens? Or are you okay? Are you set up right. so that whenever it happens, you can kind of deal with the when, outcome? Whenever a certain component of the game can elicit groans from the players, you know <laughs> you know the designer's done something right because that the goth you just learned to hate, and be like, oh god, <laughs> I can't let him move, but I can't pay the tribute. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I really enjoyed this game. It was a surprise. I mean, I love James Ernest stuff, um, but it was a surprise that this game was as good as it is. It's fun to see him yeah. have a game that you can really sink your teeth into exactly. this way with, with him being sort of more well-known for kind of lighter, not that there's anything wrong with lighter games, but right, those games exactly. tend to be kind of on the lighter I, end I, of the spectrum. I think if I had any problems with the game is that it was too good. It, <laughs> it was... There's you have knowledge of so much information that on your turn you can just go through all you know you can think three four five turns ahead because you do have so much knowledge of what's out there yeah but that's that's what also makes it fun my my one gripe is the components the, the tiny tiny little resource. little resource tokens 
are so small that it's just, you know, it's definitely not a game you want to sneeze no, <laughs> no. sitting at because the, right. the little wooden counters are uncharacteristically small for a they, Rio Grande game. Yeah, they are very dinky. Um, and I'm, I'm a little puzzled as to why because right. the board could have easily been made to have accommodated. It seems like the only reason they're that small is just because sure the little spaces the... where the goth goes, right. you want to have be able to have those resource tokens fit on the spaces. Exactly. And it seems like you could have designed the board in such a way that they the spaces would have been just a little bit bigger and you could have used kind of the standard size wooden cubes and pieces exactly. that we're kind of all used to because these are easily... Less than half the size, I would say, of the standard yeah, like wooden cube that you expect in they're, a, they're in a, a little tough to manipulate. game. Um, and if the if the components would have been larger, it might have actually lend credence to the the size of the box. Yeah, that's true. It's like you've got this huge box and the components barely fill it. You know, maybe originally they had thought to go with bigger components and then had to cut back. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? But you I know. mean, that's that's nitpicking a little. Very, but, it did, but, didn't detract from the game. No, just something we wanted to mention. But yeah, that it's it's since we're goober people as well, you know, it, right? It does it does get a check minus on that one <laughs> one little category. <laughs> so one game on the list this week, but I think we both uh, oh. both encourage you to to give it a try if if you have a chance. Um, so look for uh, Gloria Mundi. Backshelf Spotlight. These games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. The Backshelf Spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. Okay, welcome to the Backshelf Spotlight. Uh, First, we have a little bit of business to take care of from last episode. We had actually quite a few responses, yeah. some, some really crazy guesses and <laughs> yes. some good ones. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, once again, we didn't have any of the correct guesses. Right. As, just as a reminder, uh, the two games from last week's Backshelf Spotlight were Pente and uh, Pirateer. And so these were all guesses about the, the mystery connection between those two games. So... Hit it. <laughs> I'll start off. We had uh, Robin in Cambridge, England, had a handful of guesses. He had that they were played on a grid, used circular pieces on the grid, some additions came in tubes, and these additions used cloth boards. All very all, fine all guesses. Yeah. Not the right mystery one, but very <laughs> good ones. Uh, Donald Dennis had a laundry list of, of guesses. So he says, uh, both these games originally came out with soft boards that you had to roll up and put away. Later, they had flat boards produced for them. Both games have had long square tube box editions. The tokens are round. The play area is comprised of a grid. Both games were released in the 70s. Both games have been picked up by other companies. And to cover all the bases, both games start with P. <laughs> that was it. That was yeah. the connection. My God, yes. <laughs> uh, Dave in Pleasanton, California, says both games had versions that came in tubes. Kind of a <laughs> you're, popular... you're sensing a, th a theme here. I'm surprised we didn't have a, a, a contribution from what's that? The, the Alaska senator, Senator Stevens, <laughs> who claimed the internet was just a series of, of tubes. Uh, he, he should have been a contributor this week to the spiel. Um, likewise, we had Paul Eastland. Um, he guessed that both games were available in long, skinny containers, which are tubes. Tubes. <laughs> we have uh, Dave and SoCal. Both games borrow from classic abstract games, and both were self-published. 
That's an excellent. Yeah, he's great. He's, that's a great guess. <laughs> um, then we had Dwayne in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh, he guessed that Pirateer and Pente uh, were both privately published before being picked up by another publisher, just like Dave in SoCal. Um, he says if that wasn't it, then they both originated in college towns, which I thought that was really yeah, that's, nice. That's a neat. That's a really creative yeah. connection. And then if that isn't it, then they're both manufactured on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, people, <laughs> we have to talk. <laughs> exactly. He wanted to make sure he was right. Yeah. <laughs> then we got an email from uh, T.J. Clark and had some great guesses. He said, in following with a big noise theme of Neolithobum, the common theme in Pirateer and Pente is wind. That is, both Pirateer and Pente are games you can play on a windy day because they do not depend on cardboard cards or paper money, e.g., both are played on a cloth mat with stones, and both can be stored in tubes. <laughs> and he also, as an aside, Pirateer, he said Pirateer had a strong following in Key West. You can find tables with a playing grid on them. And Pente, as you noted in your show, was developed in Oklahoma, two areas of the country known for strong breezes. <laughs> Hence, like the seafaring games of old, both of these games <laughs> offer a wind-resistant playing experience that comes in a tube. <laughs> Gold star. <laughs> Gold star, TJ. That is that is some prime crazy very, very ass funny. logic. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I've been to Key West and I didn't notice those pirateer tables. I'm gonna have to note look for those next have time. To hunt for those. I go down there because that would be really cool. Uh, we also had uh, Ed Rosmerick guess that both games come with a rolled up vinyl board. Very true. Cool. Um, and then finally, we had Philippe in Amora, uh, Portugal, who had a great guess and a comment on the pent in Pente. Cool. <laughs> so he guesses that both games are combinations. The word pirateer is a combination of pirate and privateer, and the game pente is a combination of go and go moku, uh, which I thought that was great. He's wow, <laughs> using some lateral thinking there, and <laughs> and uh, it and sadly Philippe is not the correct guess, but uh, <laughs> those are he gets high yeah, marks for yeah. uh, for that creative thinking. Um, he also um, said. This is his little side note on pente. Pente is a Portuguese word, uh, which means comb, but the important fact is that it's very close to the prefix penta. Penta means five times. We use it a lot in sports. For example, if the Colts have won the Super Bowl five times in Portuguese, we would say that they are penta campeões. Sorry, Philippe, if I'm butchering Portuguese <laughs> pronunciation, which would mean that they're five-time champions. Right. Um, he thinks the prefix is also in Spanish. Knowing this, the title is actually connected with the winning conditions, which is, it's I think, true of all Romance languages that share Latin. Here we go again with Latin uh, as a, a root language, Latin and Greek, that the pent in Latin means five. You have the pentagon or the pentathlon in, in English exactly. that are all have that, that five meaning. So I think that was certainly intentional on the part of the, exactly. the, the designer right. to, to conjure up that five <laughs> in your thinking. That's so, Although we had some great guesses, of course. Sadly, oh, I, oh I we still have one left. I'm I sorry, saying, I forgot. You, yep, you also still had left. a guess from Mathen. In addition to his um, tube guess, he said they both begin with a letter W. <laughs> <laughs> mathin, mathin, mathin. <laughs> We're gonna have to have a talk. <laughs> okay, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I'm just, I was just getting ready to set you up for uh, letting them know what the the actual connection was, since since none of these people were right. So um, so many people were so close when they were talking about rolled up boards and tube editions and stuff like that. But the correct connection was actually that both these games had a 20th anniversary edition. <laughs> now, in the case of 
Pirateer, that was the tube edition. <laughs> Unfortunately, in the case of Pente, it was a boxed edition. Yep. Um, but once again, they both had a 20th anniversary edition. <laughs> I'm going to do this on behalf of all the listeners out there. <laughs> That's the smack upside Dave's head. <laughs> good good connection there, man. <laughs> he stumped me with that one. He, he held out a long time before he even let me know what the connection was this time. <laughs> cool. So I guess we... Um... We need have to, to pick a, a pick a winner. Yeah, pick we have to pick least. a creative, you know, a, a category that we think deserves deserves winning. Right. What do you think? Well, there were certainly a lot of great creative ones. I think this time, since uh, even the creative guessers even threw in the tube, let's go ahead and pick the tube. Okay, as the thing. yeah, as the one. Okay, exactly. We've got, we got lots of were, lots of tube guesses. Yeah, there was lots. We got a lot of people in on it this year, so we'll get the the old spiel <laughs> dice out and get them rolling, and see who comes up our winner. And the winner is Paul Eastland. Woohoo! Woohoo! Congratulations, Paul. We will be contacting you shortly, and you <laughs> will uh, get your coveted pair of spiel dice. You can even uh, last uh, last episode's winner actually posted a, ah. <laughs> an image on uh, Board Game Geek saying, "Now that's some goober." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you can even get a preview if you go to Board Game Geek and see uh, awesome. see what the spiel dice look like. But again, of course, we play this challenge every every backshelf spotlight segment, so you can get your guesses in. Hopefully, you'll get the mystery connection. But if you don't, we're going to pick you know the most creative. Creative uh, guess, and so there's always going to be a winner. So you'll want to send those guesses in to Stephen at thespiel.net or Dave at thespiel.net, and and keep them coming because because we the got, we got dice with your name on them. Exactly. You don't know it yet, but they have your name <laughs> on them. Not literally, they have our names. Or you know what we mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enough silliness. On to the back shelf this week. Cool. Uh, so what what's on, what do we have on tap here? Well, we got a couple neat games. I think we've got. Um, a classic two-player game from Cosmos, um, Caesar and Cleopatra, and a really neat little multiplayer game called Zauber Cocktail, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> uh, you want to start with uh, Zauber? Sure. Good. Cool. So the first game up, Zauber Cocktail, German game uh, translated being simply Magic Cocktail. Pretty <laughs> simple. Um, published by Cosmos in 2001. It was in their um, Spiel... For Veal series, I think that's how you pronounce it, which basically means games for many. Hmm. Um, there was actually six games in this series. Bucket King was the only one that ever had like an official English version. So oh, okay. Zauber Cocktail is we have uh, it's only ever been done in German. So it was designed by Arnd Bienen. It's for four to seven players, ages eight and up, and you can get it at Fun Again for twenty five bucks. And like I said before, it's going to come with the translations. Um, basically. All the players in this game are all wizards attempting to collect the right mix of ingredients so they can cast all their spells. Um, the, the bits that come in this, um, lot, they're mostly cards, 165 cards. You got 155 ingredient cards, and then you get, you have the nine recipe cards and the, and the one magic lightning card. <laughs> you have some glass stones, some wooden markers, and a neat little board that actually sets inside the box when you play. So, like I said, you're all wizards. This is kind of a pit style crazy game so everybody's dealt out a handful of cards with all these crazy wacky ingredients and i think the funnest thing about this was the fact that it was in german yes because yes. all the ingredients are just <laughs> these zany german ingredients that there's no way in hell that i can pronounce yeah. so you're, you're always going hey i've got two 
Gelber Slims. Dude, Gelber Slims for a something <laughs> schlum or a beast berry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, it was just a lot of fun. But so the basic mechanic one is everybody gets the 10 cards de dealt out. You turn one recipe card up. The recipe you think would show you what you need to collect, but that's not in fact the case. It's showing you that whoever collects the most valuable assortment of things will win this many steps because the game is actually a race game. On the board you'll have a little piece that every time you win something you'll advance on this board. So it's showing whoever has the most valuable set in this round work will earn this many steps. Second most valuable, third most valuable, and then unfortunately there's also a loser. So whoever's the worst is going to actually lose points. So it's pretty simple. Once you turn over that recipe card, all hell breaks out and everybody's like, I got two of these for three of those. You give me two of these. And you can just keep trading until your heart's content. Now here's where there's a really neat mechanic comes in. Everybody at the beginning of the game is also given a little glass stone that matches the same color as their pawn that they have on the playing board. When you think that you've done enough trading and you have a, a good hand that will earn you enough points to win the round, and the points basically are whoever is going to have the most of certain types of things. When you think that it's time for you to get out of the trading, you can take this little glass stone and place it on the board in this little space. There's three spaces for stones, and then you don't trade anymore. Here's the cool part. Once all three spaces have stones in them, then the trading's over, <laughs> which is really cool. So it can end prematurely if you're not done trading. If three other people were finished, you're, tough, you're, you're done. <laughs> but if you're the first person to have placed your stone in that ring, then you have to be in the top three people that score points or you're actually going to lose points. Mm. So before you're willing to throw your piece <laughs> up there and say, stop, you better have a good hand. That's nice risk reward yeah, to exactly. that. exactly. <laughs> it's really neat. So you go on several rounds of that. The other thing I like is that the end game is a little bit in question. That little lightning card that I told you about shuffled into the bottom four of the um, the mm -hmm. recipe cards. Mm -hmm. When it comes up, the game ends instantly. Mm. Really enjoy this game, especially with six and seven players. It's just really crazy and zany, and it does have those couple unique little mechanics in there that makes it fun. Yeah, nice twist on on that classic you know pit style game. Nice way to to find. I, I like that the timing. You know, instead of it just being a ran, you know, sand timer or something like right. that, that you can actually dictate how quick exactly. or how long that the round lasts. That that's that's really interesting. I Plus, think. any game that has Schwarz's Etwas, which is <laughs> the black thing, you gotta love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so check this one out, Zauber Cocktail, and remember, it's gonna have a connection. To Caesar and Cleopatra, of all things. <laughs> so this is a great uh, two-player game in the Cosmos series. It was published in 1997. Wolfgang Lutke is the designer. As I just said, Cosmos is the publisher. It's in their two-player series. It takes about an hour to play, probably a little bit less than that, uh -huh. um, once you get familiar with the, the rules. And you can find this online for around $15, which is an excellent deal for, for the depth strategy involved in this game. So in Cle Caesar and Cleopatra, two players are attempting to use their influence and philosophy to sway Roman officials in the Senate to join their causes. Sometimes secretly, sometimes openly, the players are going to try to outbid one another uh, to, with their influence points on these various senators, but thanks to the action cards and other deviousness, even the best lobbying can end up failing. Um, so it, uh, there are 21 patricians um, that are each worth one point, and you're trying to end up with basically the majority of the patricians supporting you, which is going to determine whether Caesar or Cleopatra is going to rule the day in the end. Um, 
the, the patricians have titles, senators, uh, praetors, quaestors, and then the uh, idols and the censors. They're arranged in columns according to five different factions. Um, you're going to draw from two decks of cards when you play. You have an influence deck and an action deck. As the name implies, the influence decks are going to be played in the, into the columns of patricians in an attempt to control a various column, or at least try to take one out of that right. column. Um, the action cards don't in exert influence, but they affect gameplay in a variety of ways that can create all kinds of havoc and opportunity. These cards have great titles like the Assassin, the Spy, and the Scout. So that kind of gives you an idea <laughs> of what these cards are going to do in the game. Um, the most interesting mechanic in the game, I think, is that you get to choose what kind of turn you're actually going to have before you take it. Are you going to take an active turn or a passive turn? Um, and you're going to need to take some of both um, in the course of the game. So the real decision is when do I do one as opposed to the other? On an active turn, you get to play. You can play action cards and and influence cards to the board. On passive turns, you're basically going to reload your hand. So after each turn, whether it's active or passive, you're going to draw a vote of confidence card, which is a separate deck. Um, there are two kinds of cards. <laughs> this I should have said this to the beginning. Any game with orgy cards, pretty much a must-have on, on my shelf. I don't Absolutely. know about anybody else. <laughs> Probably TMI there, but <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but so the the vote of confidence uh, cards. You've got uh, orgy cards, and you've got cards that are linked to the different factions. And so if a faction card comes up, then a vote of influence is going to happen within that faction, and based on the influence that you've played, the person with the most influence is going to get to pick a patrician, probably the higher, you know, or I guess they're not higher value because they're all the same value. You're going to take one out of that column and put him in your stack, and he's going to count one towards your victory. If it's an orgy, well, they're all having too much fun. <laughs> no vote no, today. No voting today. <laughs> they're getting confidence in another yeah. way. <laughs> so that kind of gives you a little bit of an or overview of this game. There's a lot of strategy and depth in this game. Um especially for as quick playing a game as it is yeah. and a very highly replayable I think cuz it's the the strategy is all and how you orchestrate uh the cards in your action deck and uh I would I would definitely um seek out Cleopatra yeah. or Caesar and Cleopatra This game was one of the early two player Cosmos games to come out and it still remains one of the best yeah, and it's absolutely I think, constantly been in print I don't yeah. th I don't think it's ever been it is, out it, of print If this is Maybe something you haven't right. seen or haven't tried Yep, go out and get this one. Absolutely. Yep, yep. Dust it off if you haven't played it for a while, or if it sounds interesting, it's a it's a great deal. <laughs> so I, I can't wait for the connections. Any game that has an orgy card in it, I, I'm just I'm afraid. Yeah. Very afraid of the connections already. <laughs> yeah. Or what you guys are going to come up with, even more so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but send those guesses in to Stephen at thespiel.net or Dave at thespiel.net. We're looking forward to it, sort of. Exactly. <laughs> Truckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now, we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the Goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great Goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great Goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. 
This episode's Truckloads of Goober is Tide of Iron, published by Fantasy Flight. Should it be available in April, which is, I think, a first here for us. We've actually got a game in the Goober segment that hasn't even been published yet. <laughs> <A> pre-Goober Goober. <laughs> exactly. There are, is so much hype about this game online. It looks so cool, and I've received handfuls of emails that said, you have to do this as Goober. <laughs> so I'm like, why wait till it comes out? Yep. Let's Goober it up now. Um, so it was designed by John Goodenow, Corey Konitska, and Christian T. Peterson. It's for two to four players, ages 12 and up. This is in Fantasy Flight's big box series, so it's going to list for 80 bucks. You're going to be able to get it for between 55 and $65. Tide of Iron is a World War II squad-level tactical combat game. Everything that comes in this base game is going to allow you to play several scenarios that sim simulate the struggle between American and German forces in Northern Europe in 1944 and 1945. Of course, this being Fantasy Flight, they've already <laughs> announced a myriad of expansions, um, which they hope to actually include more English, Russian, and Japanese troops as it goes on to make it a little broader. Oh, nice. That's so, cool. without <laughs> hesitating, let's jump straight into the goober, because this is a huge list. Occasionally, I'm going to stop and kind Catch of discuss <laughs> some of them, because I think some of the goober is what potentially make, is going to make this game really cool and stand apart. So, let's just jump right in. In addition to your rule book and scenario guide, you're going to get 216 plastic figures consisting of the American regular infantry, American elite infantry, American officers, mortar crews, machine gun crews, Sherman tanks, half-tracks, transport trucks. Then you've got the German side with the regular and elite infantry, officers, mortar crews. You've got panzer tanks, tiger tanks, half-tracks, blitz transport trucks. <laughs> Every, they've got everything covered in here. Sounds awesome. The next thing... Um, there are 48 squad bases. This is where I'm going to take a little pause because I think these are really unique. The squad bases are these circular bases and they each have four holes in them. All the troops have little pegs on the bottom of them. So you're going to be able to customize yeah. each little squad to however you want based on what you choose to put in there. Hmm. So that's kind of cool. In addition to that, each base has this little plastic hook I can't think of a better way. It's like a little clip that's on the side. Oh, so you can hook them together? So they don't hook together. That's what I thought at first. Uh. There are actually some um, specialization tokens. There's um, engineering, flamethrowing, medic, anti-tank. So you can assign these combat units to be a special, a specialized unit. Oh, so And you can slide this little token in there so it's easy. You can just, at one glance, you can see so exactly. So it's, like it's Battle Lord with the, the flags, it's, right? It feels very, it looks very much like that. <laughs> exactly. So I thought that was a really cool mechanic. Um, let's see, you're going to get plenty of reference sheets. Map boards. There are 12 double-sided map boards. Wow. Which is really cool. So you, the, the combinations that can come up, because in addition to the map boards, you also have map overlay pieces, lots of terrain stuff. So it seems like the sky's the limit uh, on designing the board every time you want to sit down and play a scenario. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Now the part that I love, 14 black dice and six <laughs> red dice. <laughs> um comes with just absolutely truckloads of markers and tokens. 350 <laughs> tokens and markers. How crazy is that? Um, now let's jump into the other thing that I think is really neat. Um, the strategy cards. It comes with a deck of strategy cards. 
and instead of one deck, these are broken down into separate decks. Um, the strategy cards are broken down into like artillery support, air support, reinforcements. What you get to do with these is on the board, there are going to be command objectives. If you can capture and retain these objectives, you're going to earn these strategy cards. Hmm. And the strategy cards allow you special actions or abilities <laughs> in the game. The neat thing is, since they're broken into separate decks, you don't have to include all the decks in all the scenarios. Hmm. So if you want to play a scenario where there's no chance of air support, or maybe even one side doesn't have a chance of air support, it's completely customizable yeah, as which cool. decks you bring in. So there's just truckloads of stuff in this thing and a couple mechanics that look really neat. Like I say, look for this to come out sometime in April. It's going to be a huge, huge game. Yeah. So I think we just, didn't we like get a peek at this at Gen Con? And, yeah. Because I think they kind of had, had a, a prototype. prototype or something sitting out there. But uh, this looks pretty exciting, so look for it here within the next month or so. That's really... Tide of Iron, big. Really cool. <laughs> I like that they're kind of given... Days of Wonder a little bit of a run for their money, yeah. too. You, you kind of think of Memoir 44 and now Battle Lore as being the, the domain of Days of Wonder. And right. it's nice to see Fantasy Flight stepping up to the plate here and saying, oh, yeah, well, we're going to up the ante a little <laughs> yeah, bit more right, and, exactly. and come right back with a, a really interesting World War II thing. So that's... Looking forward to getting a hold be, of this guy. Yeah, that'll be a fun <laughs> one. The Game Sommelier, or Right Game, Right Crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, the Game Sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week, one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right, the honor, to be called the Game Sommelier. Here's Dave with this week's challenge. Okay, welcome everybody to the Game Sommelier. If you remember from last episode, Stephen is the one in the hot seat this time, and his challenge was to find five games for a Star Wars-themed party. <laughs> Very cool. A party I would love to attend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Made me think, I need to have this party. <laughs> exactly. Well, what do you got for us? So, this was fun. This was... There's just a, so many options <laughs> and so many ways to go with this, because they're just a myriad of... You know, you you have to kind of worry about some of those media tie-in games because, you know, right. the ones that are put out by, like, Parker Brothers or whatever. Very scary. They're just, you know, easy money grabs. You Bingo. can put, you know, Star Wars on it and you know people will buy it. So, uh, But I think I found an interesting mix of some old classic ones, a couple that will be kind of surprising because of the amount of goober that they ah. have for being kind of old school games. Um, and to me that, that seemed like an important factor to bring in because most of the people that are like star Wars fans that are also gamers and things like that, you're probably into like, you had the action figures when you were a kid right. or maybe even still now. And, you know, so there's, there's kind of a, a goober overlap with, you know, the, the stuff Cool. Lends it that Star Wars. You're just feel, sucking up to me with feel. the Uber, aren't well, you? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I gotta go. <laughs> I gotta go where I know. After I hammered you so hard last <laughs> exactly. episode, I'm ready to be bludgeoned about the head here. So, so these games, they're all kind of. 
battle theme too, because if you think about Star Wars, they all come down to either Absolutely. lightsaber duels or gun battles or big starship battles. So in some sense or fashion, they're almost all conflict-oriented. But the first one on the game, uh, Sommelier, is actually a cooperative Star Wars game that ah. I didn't even know existed. It's Escape from the Death Star. It's published in 1990. Stephen Hand was ah. the... Um, the designer, West End Games, is the yep. publisher. Two to four players takes about an hour to play. So it's a cooperative board game in which players take on the role of Luke, Han Solo, Chewbacca, and Leia and attempt to escape the Death Star by shutting down the tractor beam and getting to the Millennium Falcon without being killed. The game system provides the opposition in the form of Stormtroopers, Darth Vader, and various hazards. It also provides assistance from C-3PO, R2-D2, all the, you know, your normal... Basically following the plot of the movie. You get the gist. Um, All the players, however, must reach the Millennium Falcon in order to win. Um, Even if just one player is captured, then the game's over for everybody. Which I didn't know. I had no idea there was a co-op Star Wars game out there. I want that game. That sounds really cool, I think. I haven't actually played it, but just from doing the did, research... Did you get to see any pictures of it? Or is um, it's, it typical West End? It's t- typical West End. Okay. It's th- this is the one that doesn't fit the sort of goobery... Right. It's not massive cool. you know, amounts of stuff, but it has a nice sort of board layout of the Death Star, typical sort of game board, and I think the, the little fold-up cardboard, cardboard guys, with, right. with the stand. So this one is the exception okay. to, the, to the kind of goober rule. So getting into the more... Oh, I guess I have to let you give me my thumbs up. I'm just going to run through them. So you, you just can't assume that you were getting a thumbs no, up. No, uh-huh. I, was, I wasn't assuming anything. I just <laughs> I just was trying to rush it so that I didn't, <laughs> didn't incur your wrath. Well, this game sounds awesome. I would love to own this game. Cooperative game, Star Wars, where you're trying to escape the Death Star. Definitely a thumbs up. That's cool. Shoo. Sorry, I jumped the gun there. <laughs> okay, so next, number two, is Star Wars Epic Duels. I could have gone so many ways with this. I, I thought we had to have a representative of the new Hasbro Star Wars line of, of goobery games. Right. We, we covered the Queen's Gambit early exactly. on, I think episode four of the Spiel, um, and this fits in that same line of, of games by Hasbro. Um, it was first published in 2002, Craig Van Ness, Alan Roach, and Rob Daviau, I'm probably butchering the name, um, are the designers, same people who did Queen's Gambit, as a matter of fact. Hasbro, Milton Bradley is the publisher. Two to six players. The advantage over something like um, Queen's Gambit, the reason I picked this one, is this game plays in 30 minutes. Wow. So you could easily play this game, you know, have it set up for multiple people. So in this game, you're doing sort of individual battles between famous Star Wars characters set on different board locations. So you choose major characters that have one that has one or two minor characters with it. Each set of characters has its own deck of cards, which are used for attack, defense, or special abilities. Each deck is unique with certain powers relevant to their major characters. There are different modes of play, one-on-one battles, or up to three teams can play against each other. Up to six players can play in a free-for-all also, with the last man standing (laughs) being the winner. There are all kinds of different board maps. So there's like the Geonosis map, excuse me, uh, the Emperor's Throne Room, the carbon freezing room, and even like a landing platform. Uh, The game includes 31 decorated figures from all across the whole Star Wars spectrum, from old school to to the new films. Um, There's 12 character cards that have the major and minor character life tracks on them, 378 action cards, four battlefield boards, movement dice, you know, it's it's really cool. I, I just think that it, it would be a really fun setup for a Star Wars party because you could play so quickly. 
I've actually seen this before, and even though it, it does have the look of being, you know, maybe for the younger audience or something, like it, it just looks like a Hasbro type thing. Yeah. I have been so tempted to get this game just because of the goober. And from your little description, it sounds like it'd be fun to play too. You know, for a nice light thing in a half hour at a Star Wars party, and you get to manipulate all those cool figures. Thumbs up. <laughs> So, uh, sort of trending more into the the more in depth ones. So we're kind of going from the the lighter to the little more heavy. Cool. Um, there's a, a bit older game called Star Wars Miniatures Battles. It's 1991. Paul Murphy St- and Stephen Crane are the designers. Again, West End. There are a lot of these really. When West End owned the the licenses to the Star Wars stuff, they put out a really nice wide variety of Star Wars games. I think. I didn't know West End did that. Yeah, uh, it's two to three players, but I think you could easily. I've played this where you could divide up your forces and play with mm-hmm. with multiple people. It's probably a two hour game because it's right. it, it is a miniatures war game. Exactly. Um, it's man to man sort of squad level based combat. Um, it came with like me- you could buy metal miniatures that came in the box with the basic set with imperial and rebel forces a big scenario book of all different kinds of of scenarios the the thing that i liked the most about it was that the rules were very streamlined it's for a miniatures type war game it was a uh, fairly easy to pick up so even if if you just had one person who knew the rules at a at a party you could sit down and within 10 minutes bring people up to speed to... on the basic concepts of the game and it would be really cool to kind of set up you could have the movies playing in the background and then <laughs> actually be playing one of the battles you know from any of the the movies with the different imperial and rebel troops so i um i know you could go the more modern there's the new star wars miniatures right. game with the little uh pre-painted right. figs or the the um even the starship one which i'm oh, going to reference new, right. later too cool. that are you know newer but i think it's kind of cool to to bring up some of these older games cuz you can still find this easily on like ebay and places okay. like that with the scenario books they put out tons of different scenario books as well so you could you could either make your own or you've got a wealth of resource information to kind of design um with that in mind yeah i think i think that's great as long as it you know didn't manip or monopolize like too much time at a party. I'm not sure what he had in mind, you know, with the Star Wars party, whether it was, you know, kind of just light and hanging out, because that seems like you're going to invest some time yeah. when you play that. But that's something, I mean, Star Wars people, fans are into that. Yeah, so. I figure you have, if you're going to have a Star Wars party, you probably got movies, you're probably going to be there for a little while. Right. Or at least throw one option of if you want to sit down and play for a long time, one game, right. here's, here's your one big meaty game that, that might not be one people know about. Cool. You know, off the top of their heads. Yeah, I give that thumbs up. Cool. (laughs) So here's the one that uh, I was really surprised by. This is a Parker Brothers game. Oh, yeah? Uh, Return of the Jedi Battle at Sarlacc's Pit. What the heck? (laughs) This was put out in 1983. This was just totally a money grab by Parker Brothers. Exactly. Right when the um, movie came out. So... um, let me just cover what is in the game. So okay. you get a three-dimensional game board. You remember the Sarlacc from Return of the Jedi? Right. That's the big like antlion thing. Exactly. Where the big battle over over the pit with exactly. Jabba the Hutt. So you get an actual like Sarlacc's pit. It's this cardboard cone that you put together. <laughs> and the, the little skiff, the little jet skiff, uh-huh. sort of fits in. That's the game board and sort of fits in on top of the Sarlacc's pit. And that's what you're going to play the game on with little 
figures of the Gamorrean guards and Luke <laughs> on the top of it. Um, and your object is to try to knock all the Gamorrean oh, guards off into the pit. And I mean, you physically boink, knock Boink-a- them into oh, the, the pit. You very know, I mean, cool. it's totally just a roll and move kind of exactly. game, but just for the visuals and for, you know, I mean, it's going to take 10, 15 minutes to play this game and you could reset it up and play this all night long, or you could have like tournaments to see how fast <laughs> you can do it. I just think it would be a, a hoot. That that's a huge thumbs up. That would be very very fun. That's I can't imagine something better than having a game like that. That's so light that it's fun. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. great filler, great visual to look at. That's neat. Can you still were you able to find that? Is it still? You can find it on eBay. Still, I mean, you know, it's not in print, right. obviously, but you can definitely cool. find copies. That's going to be the hardest one. That's probably okay. to find. You're probably going to have to do a little digging to get it because it's Star Wars, so it, people yep. collect it, and that's exactly. Gonna, you know, you're not just buying it for the game. You're, there are people just buying it because it says Star Wars on it. Um, <clears throat> so, um, last but not least, um, this is another kind of on the lighter. Uh, I am at five, right? Yeah, I yep. think this is five. <laughs> I lost track. Um, the force is not strong with me today. <laughs> so the last one, I imagine having several copies of this game out, and you could even have a dual tournament. So this one is Star Wars Lightsaber Dueling. So this is 1988. Al Lenardi and Dennis Gressy or Gretchy. Uh, West End Games, again, they're, they're well represented wow. on this list. Uh, it's a two-player game. And it's 20 minutes. So this, you remember about that flip football game that I told you about before in a past episode where you're picking plays and you're flipping through? Right. I had mentioned it. This is almost the same kind of thing, but with lightsaber duels. So you have a Luke book and like a Vader book, and you're doing duels by picking your move, and then the other person <laughs> picks their move, and you resolve combat based on how how you pick these pages in the books. Um, the book Each book contains 32 character pages plus rules. They depict the com- combatants in various offensive and defensive positions that show each player what they're looking at for each movement in the game. Um, you begin the game with 30 force points, and you lose one for each wound okay. that you take. So you're trying to knock the other person down to zero. But I could see, you know, if you could find enough copies, again, out of print, yeah. so it's going to be a little difficult. But if you could find, you know, let's say eight copies, you could have this kind of bracketed tournament. <laughs> you could each pick, you know, a different character to, right. to be or something like that. And you could do a little lightsaber dueling tournament uh, at the end and have some kind of cool prize that, that you yeah, give I can out. See, I can see the whole party, um, this being the focal point for the whole thing, you know. Yeah. Just in between things, you could reduce the number of, wouldn't have to play to 30. You know, you could just reduce the number and whenever you have a chance, grab your book and, come on, we're going at it, baby. Yep. Or you could even make it free. I didn't, I just thought of this, but you could make it like free form where each person has the book with them and you're like, you, now! Exactly. And you just, exactly. you know, take a pot shot as people as you're, you know, just mixing around with the right. party. Yeah, exactly. Your points could be accumulate, you know, accumulative for everybody. Mm-hmm. That that would be a hoot. <laughs> but that, I mean, it's kind of a a lot, very light on the Star Wars spectrum of things. But I think you know, not light on fun though. That no. sounds that sounds great. And if you do that, you know, if someone picks Jar Jar, you all just gain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no mercy. <laughs> yeah, just kill him outright fast. Especially if they use the dang. Uh, Accent. Yeah. Kill them quickly. <laughs> Misa, no, like this party. No, kill him. <laughs> Thumbs up. Five great picks. <laughs> I love the fact that you, uh, Star Wars is a great place to go to the goober side on some of that stuff because there is so much neat stuff out there. Yeah. It would be great to be at a party with all that stuff sitting out. <laughs> Good job. So, well, you're not going to ha- your challenge is going to be postponed. Oh, yeah? By a week because we're going to try a special new segment. 
uh, next time. Cool. Um, we don't even really have a name for it yet. Do, <laughs> do we? The mystery unnamed. Yeah, that's segment. it. But it's going to have to do with um, collecting and organizing your game collection and that okay. kind of thing. I think the, the original idea was to maybe call it like collector's corner. Oh, okay. Or something like that. So I think you're going to be on the hot seat for that uh, since you are Mister Collector and Mister Organization amongst <laughs> the two of us. So so look forward to a new experimental segment next week in the place of of back or of. Game Sommelier, but you're not getting off the hook that easy. I'm going to have a super splendiferous challenge for you. I'm Uh, very frightened you have extra time now to come up with the challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. So first, a giant size thank you is in order. So thanks goes out to Bay in California um, for uh, your generous donation. We've we've started to have some donations to to the site here, to the Spiel, and we really, really appreciate it. Your support helps keep the show rolling and, more importantly, growing. Absolutely. Um, So we... We're always going to give a shout out. We're going to have a list of all the patrons of the, of the spiel. We got to come up with some we'll come cool. Out, come up with a groovy <clears throat> name, moniker for everybody. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and once we do that, we'll we'll let you know. But but we definitely have to start out by by saying thanks to to Bay. It really does help. Great. Thank you very much. Keeps that keeps that bandwidth bill yeah. in in check. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So um, we, we wanted to tout a few of our new interactive features on on the website before we get into some of the mail contributions from other listeners. Uh, we're going to have the the weekly poll for each episode. So I thought we'd review the last poll that we had on the site. So the last poll question was, typically, how many people do you play games with? It was a pretty interesting set of responses. It looks like about half of the people total came in at either two or three players. We had 38% of the people who responded play with three players typically, and 25% play with two players. The rest were all four, five, or six, which actually, I think that kind of surprised me that almost half play with four or more people yeah, in their groups. That That's really awesome. Yeah, if you've great. got a, a regular group that you're able to play with that many people, I would have, to, honestly, I would have figured the two and three would have been more like 75%. That's where Granted, the data set isn't huge, right. but that's we're hoping that by reminding you about <laughs> it that more people will participate in the poll. So that was last week's poll. What's this week's poll? Well, I thought this week's poll would be really cool if we tried to f- if we asked what is your favorite type of goober? Is it dice, tiles, wooden cubes? Maybe it's meeples. Could be painted miniatures. Maybe all those hundreds of cardboard counters and chits <laughs> you get, or could be nice cards. What is your favorite type of goober when you buy a game or when you open a game? What do you like to play with? <laughs> Not that I'm trying to give you any hints, but a subliminal dice. Dice, dice, dice. <laughs> but feel free to answer however yeah. you want. <laughs> it's not tainted at all. This is a completely scientific survey. Exactly. <laughs> um, so then we also wanted to remind everybody about our um, Spiel Frapper map. Um, there's a link on the new site to our map. You can put a pen in it, and then we can see who you are and where you're listening from. We don't have any listeners in South America yet. Mm-hmm. We've got we've got almost the whole world covered, yep. but no South America South or Africa. Those and no Africa and no Antarcticans. Yep. <laughs> Darn it! What's up with that? <laughs> yeah. So if you're out there, let us know. Um, exactly. Even if you're a right. penguin. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, lastly, uh, as far as little housekeeping notes related to the site and us, uh, we've got. Uh, 
we've got a couple really nice reviews on the iTunes store out there about our our show, but both of the reviews about the spiel both date back to last summer. So if anybody feels compelled to, it might be cool to give folks an idea of where the show is now, because the show's, I think, kind of grown in, into its Absolutely. own, and we've kind of started to hit our stride here. So good, bad, indifferent, we don't care. The more reviews we have, the more attention, and probably the more listeners we'll get. So if anybody feels so inclined, it might be cool to, to let people we're, know what's going on now. We are, the show. we are nearing that year mark, aren't we? Yeah, it's coming up. We only Woo! have about another month, and we will, wow. the spiel will be officially a, about a year year old so wait hard to believe but <laughs> it's pretty darn cool so enough housekeeping let's get cool. on to get on to the email <laughs> email so um go for it okay uh we received an email from brad keen and he wrote us with a little report on to court the king something we discussed an episode or two ago and in the news and notes in yeah. the news and notes so it's great to hear a little bit of something about this game he says it was a quick game proved to be just the filler to end a night of fun gaming I think that I like the use of the different cards in the game to alter the dice rolls much more than the dice mechanic itself. Trying to decide what combination of cards to use to alter the rolls was intriguing, but not overwhelmingly brain-burning. <laughs> I felt at times that I was trying to crack a code, that the right combination of card uses existed, and I had to discover it. And even, even if the roll of a die could destroy careful planning, it did not prove to be overly frustrating given the light mood of the game and its quick playing time, which... That's exactly why this game sounds like I would like it. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, thank you very much for writing in with that, because I was looking for somebody's opinion mm -hmm. who had played it, and this just reinforces the fact that I would love to have this yeah. for some filler. <laughs> I think we, I even cut it out of the, the email, but I think he even said, oh, having played it, he thought it would be a game you would really like, <laughs> too. So <Cool. laughs> only confirming that fact. Sweet. So our friend Mossa in Finland writes, um, he has a nice little... Uh, kudos for us about our show notes. He says, although I listen to many other board gaming podcasts, there is at least one aspect where you rule, rule supreme over the other shows, and that is our show notes. He thinks they're much more important than enhan the enhanced version of the podcast, for example, and he very much appreciates it. And I, yeah. I would... <laughs> kudos to Steven. I know that... He I'm not stays up late, way too many nights trying to do those show notes. Well, I don't. I'm not looking for pats on the back as much as encouraging people to take advantage of them. Right. Because to me, that's really, uh, I think, added value to any podcast is the ability to know if we're going to talk about something on the show that you can go to the site and be guaranteed that you're going to find the appropriate links to to dig deeper. And if any of this stuff interests you, exactly, you don't have to just sit here and be bored to death by us listening. If you're actively surfing while you're listening, you can go and and get more in-depth information on this stuff at a simple click of the mouse. So uh, that's uh, I'm not so much wanting to pat myself <laughs> on the back, but just to say all that stuff is there just waiting please, to be yeah, used. Please, so please, use please use it because I see that as – I'm with you, Masa. I think that it's, it adds a lot to, the, to each show, and, and hopefully you guys will take advantage of it. <laughs> exactly. Okay, we received an email from Dwayne Hendrickson. Another spiel first. We have a correction of a correction. <laughs> <laughs> Dwayne, uh, first of all, he writes and he says, just found your podcast, and I'm having a great time rolling through the back issues. However, he re we recently reviewed, or we received a correction from a listener regarding the Cleopatra and Society of the Architects, and this was when we were talking about the mosaic tiles and the towers and scoring the bonus things. Unfortunately, we were incorrect to start with, and the listener that sent us the correction was incorrect. So the <laughs> correction for the correction is that 
Actually, the mosaics receive a bonus for each palm tree that they cover instead of for the walls. And it's the wall pieces that receive a bonus for each square of an existing mosaic that they touch. So it's the walls that get the bonus, exactly. not the mosaics. Exactly. So we've got it straight now. We <laughs> promise that's right. We won't have any corrections of our corrections, corrections of, of our the corrections. corrections. Exactly. <laughs> Next episode. Exactly. Thank you Please. very much, Dwayne, for keeping us on the up and up here. So um, we also um, have an email here from uh, TJ, who sent in some backshelf spotlight. Cool. Uh, guesses he was the wind. Did the wind. <laughs> Good job, uh, TJ. Guess there. That was cool. So... Um, he says, thank you for giving me the opportunity to listen. I really enjoy the show. I'm new to the iPod scene, so I've only been a fan since December, but I'm hooked. You guys put out a quality product, much to my wife's chagrin. So this is a little <laughs> snippet of his conversation between him and his wife that he sort of quotes okay. in the thing. So his wife says, wait, so this is a radio show about board games. So just buying and punching out pieces and putting pieces into baggies and reading instructions and playing games isn't enough. You have to listen to other geeks talk about these games, too? <laughs> he says, yeah, that's basically it. Well, except for the idea that it would be preferable to listen and do all of the above simultaneously. <laughs> oh, check out this other website. This guy actually creates videos about board games. Look, he's wearing a kilt. That's so cool. I love this technology. Honey, look. <laughs> Awesome, Which TJ. Is awesome. Of course, TJ's referring to the the great video podcast, uh, board games it's with so, Scott. With Scott, so there's you know there's a myriad of cool board game <laughs> podcasts out there, and it's cool. I'm glad you found us too in that in that mix. And I think and, I think uh, TJ's <laughs> wife and uh, my wife are kindred spirits because yeah. that's pretty much how she feels. <laughs> Imagine TJ how we have to try to explain what it is to, <laughs> that we do to people when they say you say oh I do a podcast and they're like really and then there's like what's it about and you're like. Um, board games, and they're just they. You just get this blank look on their face, like okay, <laughs> no, no, really, it's, no, it's, it's cool. <laughs> Promise, I, it's it's awesome. <laughs> we're we're up to like what two listeners now, really. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thanks for the, thanks for uh, confirming that that we're not alone. <laughs> yeah, great email, thank you. So I think that'll just about put a lid on on episode twenty four here of of the spiel. I think we've covered a lot of ground from from ancient Rome all the way up through. Uh, a galaxy exactly. far, far away. So um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, I'm Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. So remember, whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You, you just, just have, have to play. play. What did you think of this game? <laughs> <laughs>